I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-host is Mike Philbrick of Resolve Asset Management, SEZC. And our very special guests today are Meb Faber of Cambria Asset Management and Mark Dalpay of Richardson Wealth. This is episode one of Raise Your Average. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. For decades, a balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds has been the highly regarded staple of investing. It's a concept that has been under fire well before COVID happened. But as 2020 unfolded, the 60-40 portfolio has continued to confound its critics. So that's what we're going to talk about, the 60-40 portfolio puzzle. With yields on 10-year bonds on both sides of the border descending to record low levels, Canada's are at 0.75% and U.S. 10-years at 0.927%, and stocks climbing to all-time historical highs, probably as we speak, it's anybody's guess as to what happens the next 10 years. At sub 1% levels, can we look at government bonds for income anymore? Can we count on bonds to continue to provide the ballast to equities anymore? What about stocks? What are the forward-looking returns for stocks? And moreover, what stocks? For this very first episode, we've got two very bright and creative and successful people that we've brought on as guests to talk about it. One of them is Meb Faber. Meb is the CIO and founder of Cambria Asset Management based in Los Angeles, California. They run some well-known ETFs as well as separate accounts for individual investors. Meb has an awesome podcast, The Meb Faber Show, where he's interviewed hundreds of other investors. He's a brilliant quant. We've asked him to come on and talk about what his answer to this dilemma is that we're all facing. We've also got Mark Dalpay, a very successful portfolio manager an advisor at Richardson Wealth, where he has run the Delpay Millet Group advisory practice. Mark has been an advisor since 1990. I've known Mark since 2004 when I was the head of distribution for a mutual fund company specializing in India and China equities. Mark was way ahead of the curve as an advisor and more significantly as a fee-based discretionary portfolio manager with both the use of ETFs and actively managed funds 16 years ago when we first became acquainted. Mark, Meb, it's really great to be with you. We're so excited to have this conversation. Thank you. Awesome. Great to be here. That's a that great, great introduction and great way to set this up. D does anyone want to jump into, you know, sort of just the, the more of the backdrop on, on where we are at all? Well, let me, let me do a bit of that. So, so the, 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 the historical reference point on rates is, is 5,000 year lows. So the lows are, you know, sort of right at the bottom. And uh, as Pierre alluded to, we've got, you know, government bonds at 90 basis points. You know, you go to the agency bonds at 1.2. Uh, you creep up to um, high grade corporates at uh, 1 point, you know, 9. And so you've got a very small incremental bit of yield that you're getting each time uh, you move down the balance sheet, as it were, for, in a corporate uh, finance perspective. So, so that kind of frames the conversation and um, gets us, I hope, started. A any other thoughts on that from uh, Mark? Yeah, Matt? I, can, uh, I got a thought, sorry, which is, go ahead, sorry, which is the, uh, uh, <laughs> when you said background, I said, my background today is actually 
totally appropriate, which is if you guys can recognize or if the listeners or watchers can see it, it's from the movie Up, which if anyone has watched, uh, basically the entire audience is crying. Not No spoiler alert, but the entire audience is crying in the first five minutes. And then the movie proceeds to uh, become a, a warm and uh, happy, happy movie for the rest. And I think that's a good analogy for 2020, uh, where we are. Uh, first quarter <laughs> was seemed like the zombie apocalypse, very dark times. And then probably to a lot of people's surprise, uh, here we are at all-time highs in many markets ending the year. Uh, what that sets the stage for, I think we'll talk a lot about today. Uh, but uh, I'll kick it over to Mark and hear what uh, hear what you have to say. Yes, uh, the discussion, I guess, is going to be on the 60-40 mix. Uh, I call it the 40-60 because I've never seen a statement where you have stocks in front of bonds. So I call it the 40-60. And the 40-60 reasoning uh, and why you had bonds in a 40-60 mix uh, basically uh, used to be that it provided stability, even capital appreciation potential at times of uh, stock market rough patches uh, because uh, bonds and stocks uh, were negatively correlated in these times. And also the cost of waiting between these volatile periods was not very large with rates at three, four, 5%. And bonds did not represent a large risk of losing value. But I think these, these times are behind us. And uh, I think we need to uh, think about our bond our portfolio and what uh, what it provides in a 40-60 mix. Uh, I agree. I mean, when you think about that in that context, um, so you had a hedge, so you've got you've got two levers in the portfolio uh, where you've had interest rates go from, you know, sort of 18 to 20% to zero. And so the, the cost of carry on the hedge was quite positive, right? Both from a capital appreciation perspective and as you say, while you were waiting in bonds, I know, Mab, you're, you're famous for, for stating this, like stocks have not outperformed bonds, or if they have over the very long term, the long duration bonds, it's just coming together now. So it's not necessarily that the stocks, uh, that stocks outperform bonds all, over all periods and all, all regimes. Um, so we're, we're now faced with the investor um, not having a huge tailwind, not having a massive positive carry on this non-correlated asset. And, you know, if we look at the 70s, the assets of stocks and bonds were actually correlated. And so um, what what do we do? Well, Philbrick, you can remember the 70s. I can't so much. But um, the uh, as you look at story. the world today, <laughs> uh, I did a fun tweet yesterday where it was Vanguard's annual outlook. And I said, um, the average investor across any survey you can ever find expects about 10% returns. Um, the... Uh, average corporate pension fund, let's call it seven to eight percent, perhaps. Uh, they've got a little more sober in the last ten years, but but really around seven to eight percent. And Vanguard pegs the sixty forty uh, global, by the way, at under five percent. So you have a pretty big mismatch if their expectations are correct on uh, investor expectations and potential reality. And I mean, the bond part is easy. Like, you know what you're going to get with bonds. Uh, you're going to get essentially the yield unless you move hard in the paint negative. Uh, and then you're really screwed then um, because there's nowhere to go and nowhere to hide. So, uh, you know, if you look at bonds around the world this year, Canada and the U.S. are essentially like high yield markets at one, it, it, I'm rounding up at 1%. Um, 
you know, unless you want to venture into Pakistan and Venezuela and Zambia and all sorts of other countries, um, the developed world GDP weighted bonds are, are uh, big fat donuts. And so um, bonds, people have always expected to hedge and they did in the U.S. this year. And I think potentially, you know, in the future, some some big crisis opportunities when uh, if and when equities ever uh, get whacked again is, you know, the bond stock correlation isn't necessarily a given. Like you you do not deserve to get bonds doing well just because uh, you hope they will. And in a lot of the world, developed markets bonds didn't help this year because they were already at zero or negative. And so when their equity markets got whacked, the bonds didn't really uh, participate like U.S. Treasuries did. Will that happen? Who knows? Um, but uh, but so the bond portion is known returns. And then what happens with stocks? You know, who knows? Maybe Elon Musk uh, finds uh, gold on on Mars and diamonds and everything else. But um, but but that's the bigger challenge I think for a lot of people is what do you do? And by the way, and, and Mike's uh, uh, been on this too. And I just want to get it out early because it always triggers me. In the most recent Schroeder survey, they asked people, uh, uh, what do you expect for your equity markets? And the U.S. investors said 15%. And I don't know if they were only uh, polling the Robinhood crowd or what, but uh, that number is so far out of whack with what is even possible um, that it just kind of makes you shake your head and say, this is, this is going to be a, a bad outcome. Because as we know in life, not just in markets, but relationships, marriages, uh, relationships with children, expectations and reality. When you get a big disconnect between that, uh, that's when the real problems start to happen. So people expecting 10 to 15%, even eight. And, and Vanguard, by the way, they look at about two dozen asset classes. There was only one that even had 8% potential returns, uh, and that was ex-US stocks. So I'll pause there. Uh, may want to get the, all the depressing stuff up up front, so we can. Yeah, let's let's get yeah. it. Let's get it out yeah. of the way. I saw J.P. Morgan also came out with their their expectations for the next ten to fifteen years were four point two percent. So right right in line with Vanguard. So Mark, how, how do you how do you deal with that when when you're talking with with um, individual clients? So you've got a bit of a um, a unique purview here. You're on the ground, boots on the ground, talking to individual investors. How do you help couch that, um, these, these basically unrealistic expectations with well, we reality? We try to uh, uh, under-promise and over-deliver. Uh, over uh, we've been using 4%. We do financial plans for clients on average once, once per day. So that's about 250, 200, 300 per year. So we've been doing this for a, a while. And we used to use 5% as an average return on portfolio for 40, 50 year horizon. Uh, we've changed that three or four years ago to 4%. So we've been uh, performing a lot better than that, but uh, we've been managing these expectations. But uh, something funny has happened in the last 25, let's say 20, 25 years, is you used to buy bonds originally for the current income that it provided you and didn't expect capital appreciation. You used to buy stocks because of the capital appreciation. And if stocks paid you dividends, it was an added bonus. And what has happened in the last 25, 30 years is most of your return on bond has been capital appreciation and most of the return on stock has been your dividend, 
which represents something like 50 or 60 percent of your return over 20 years has been the dividend so things have been reversed uh, but now also one other thing has been reversed as rates used to be 15 percent and now they're one percent so i think that people have to rethink their notion of what's going to contribute what to uh, performance uh, of their balance portfolio for the next uh, 10 years. So I think the discussion is very uh, apropos. Do you find you get pushback from, from individual investors on keeping those uh, very sober and realistic uh, expectations? Do you, do you find some clients uh, don't want to hear that and, and want to move to a, a different advisor who might be promising something more? Um, in the line, it hasn't been our uh, our experience uh, because first we've delivered more than the four percent, four or five percent that uh, we use. And the flip side, if you buy the fact that you're going to earn, let's say, ten percent on your uh, assets, that means that you're you don't feel obligated to save as much, and you feel that you can retire earlier. Uh, the problem is once you've retired. It's tough to come back after being retired five years and change your standard of living. So the flip side of being wrong on your assumption of portfolio return is that you're going to have to work five years more or something like that. So I tell my clients that it's better to use conservative assumptions, re re revise it every year, and to make sure that our cost of living expectation and our retirement expectation is met. And if we happen to have a little more money, That'll be good. That'll be a good problem versus the opposite, which is a very bad problem to have. Right. Well, and and then I think I think I'll 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 just ch change this conversation just slightly because I, I also think that there's uh, maybe a lack of recognition. Well, obviously, when we look at the return expectations on the equity side of the sixty forty portfolio, um, I think that people are missing the um, the connection between what the risk free rate is longer term. And how that plays into a discounted cash flow analysis with respect to discounted cash flow assets like stocks, like real estate, like infrastructure. And I wonder, you know, so we have a, an environment where potentially many assets are expensive. And I know you've got a bit of a purview on this, uh, Meb, as well. So maybe I'll throw it over to you to, to talk about that a little yeah, bit. Yeah. So, um, this is the more uh, uplifting part where, you know, the base case in my mind, the Vanguard default market cap weighted portfolios. Uh, I'm a U.S. based investor. So U.S. is kind of bottom of the barrel. Um, you have the bonds and stocks. You know, Bogle said this. A fun way to estimate stock returns, listeners, by the way, is, is what we call the Bogle equation. There's three inputs. It's starting dividend yield, uh, earnings or dividends growth and change in valuation. And Bogle, before he passed, said, you know, that puts the U.S. about uh, 4%. And as the valuations have continued up, we like to use 10-year P ratios. doesn't matter. You can use any valuation metrics you want, dividend yield, whatever. Um, uh, it's, it, it keeps coming lower. Still positive, not a bubble, but the 10-year P ratio is right around 34, which is the highest it's ever been outside the internet bubble. But, but as I made clear on Twitter the other day, I said, uh, the first time we hit 34 in history, was in 1998. Guess what happened next? Stock market went up by 50%. So it's no guarantee uh, that it can't keep going up. And in the case of Japan and other countries like India and China, it's gone up to 50 or 60 or in Japan as high as uh, 95. And so it's possible, right? Um, but not necessarily probable. So the odds, like if you're at the blackjack or poker table, are that the US has lower returns. And so um, the good news is, so, so expectations. 
expectations like Mark, I think, was talking about, um, you know, celebrate, drink the champagne, wake up the next morning, take a few aspirin uh, and and take your medicine. Say, look, I'm going to expect 4% returns, anything above that gravy. Now, if you're willing to get weirder, you know, the U.S. is half world market cap of the 45 countries around the world. We calculate it's the second most expensive country in the world across all the valuation metrics. That's the bad news. Um, it's not a bubble, though. We don't think like the highest it was in the Internet bubble. It hit a P of 45, uh, but it's not good. The good news is the rest of the world is, is reasonable. Um, most other foreign developed countries are around P of 20. Uh, but then if you go into emerging markets, the, they're in the low teens. If you're willing to be weird enough to go in the emerging markets and the cheapest countries, a bucket of those are around 10. So pretty big valuation spreads versus the U.S. in particular. And that and that uh, sort of oscillates over time. You know, the U.S. isn't always more expensive. Over the last 40 years, there's been no valuation premium for the U.S. over the rest of the world. Uh, and at certain times, in like the 80s, the U.S. was much cheaper than the rest of the world. But if you're a global market cap investor, you put over half in the U.S. And if you're an American investor listening to this, you put probably 80% plus. Um, Canada. Valuations are, are, I think, um, not terrible, kind of in that foreign developed category, but not screaming cheap like uh, a lot of Europe and certain countries. But, but also the way to think about, I think, a lot of the, this basic stuff, too, is valuation plays out over very long time horizons. Uh, we're talking years and decades rather than days, weeks, quarters, like many investors think about. Uh, and so this year is a great example. You know, I would have said the exact same thing at the beginning of this year. Uh, and the U.S. is is one of the best performing stock markets, and so um, you know I'll just put it put it on repeat again. But over the next decade, if you look at the decade prior, it's pretty rare for uh, a, a country like the U.S. to outperform a globally average or GDP weighted. Uh, it happened in the 20 teens. It hadn't happened before that since the 90s. Again, my favorite bubble when I was in university. Uh, before that, it hadn't happened since 1910. Uh, 1910s. So. It's not a normal situation. So you want to be globally diversified. And the good news of all this discussion, there's a lot of opportunity in the rest of the world, but you got to be pretty weird and different. You got to be willing to put money uh, in places and tilt towards things like value, uh, which most of the market cap weighted portfolio doesn't give you. There's no tether to value whatsoever. Um, so uh, there's a little bit of barbell, good and bad in this discussion and, and take your medicine. But if you're willing, willing to move beyond your borders, I think there's a lot of opportunity. I think it's I think it's um, uh, interesting. Maybe tag on Reb, Meb, your um, your your time frames that you're you're communicating with people too, because I think that that actually dovetails well with the with the that whole paradigm that you're speaking of. Um, I'll say this really quickly, and then I'll pause for a minute. You know, we have over sixty thousand investors as a public market investor, and invariably we have twelve funds, and someone will come up to me uh, back in the in the pre-corona at a cocktail party. Now it's virtually. They'll call me or email me, say, Meb. Bought one of your funds. It's been disappointing over the last three months, maybe six months. I'm going to give it till, you know, May, the next year, six months, three months. Why do you think it's done so bad? And then no matter what, it's compared to the S&P, even if it's like a, a foreign bond fund compared to the S&P. And then say, um, why do you think it's had such terrible performance and how long should I give it? And I used to say 10 years. Um, and so when we were in person, they would laugh awkwardly thinking I'm joking. And then, and, and now I've, and this is very honest, by the way, I say 20, 
And then they, they're like, what are you talking about? I don't have 20 years. That's crazy. Well, I say, well, that's what it should be. And they say, what are you talking about? And I say, well, let me give you an example. In 2020, there is no more universally held belief in all of investing. And you guys can come up with one if you know one. Listeners, think of one. Think of what the most universally held belief is in your head. And it's, in my mind, stocks overperform bond, outperform bonds over time. And I believe that's true. But when most people think over time, what does that mean to them? It means two to three years. And that's what every institution thinks too. They're just as bad as individuals. Uh, I'm not here just to dunk on the, those crazy retail Robin Hooders. The institutions like CalPERS and others I'd love to pick on are just as bad. Um, it's two to three years. But this year in 2020, and the example I give in the US, because uh, there's been a huge stock bond spread over the years, is that stocks had had the same performance as long bonds. And, and this is in March, and obviously I'm cherry picking, but for 40 years, not five, not 10, not two or three, not 20, 40 years. And there's been other periods in many other countries where you have 50 year, uh, five decade similar performance. And so this also, that's just asset classes. So every active manager or strategy, whether it's value or growth or high dividends or gold or stream, whatever goes through these periods. Um, and so if you're not willing to give a minimum of a decade, uh, and, and in particular, the approach I think is you allocate and set your sell rules up front. No one does that, you know, say, here's why I would sell. And it underperforming a benchmark for three years is probably the opposite. You probably want to allocating more, not, uh, not selling it, but, um, that's human. You know, I think this is a really hard mismatch unless you have an advisor or have written automated rules and guardrails in place, you're going to muck it up. Like I, I, this is why I'm a quant. I had all these behavioral biases, you know, I I've been through it. It's painful. I don't know why anyone would want to, but until you go through that experience, uh, and the sad part is people continue to, to struggle with it on, on all levels and in investing. So, uh, the time, your time horizon is way longer than, than you expect. Yeah. I think, I think you're right there. And diversification is the free lunch that you have to pay for. Right. If you're going to have diversity in the portfolio, something's going to be killing it and some, something's going to be killing it. I'm going to steal that. So, that's Mark, a great, from your that's perspective. That's a great phrase. Is that a Philbrick original? I'm going to take that. That is, that's if you can, yeah, you, you got it. I'll, I'll grant you license in yeah. the TA. Well, I was going to say, I was going to say, one thing I was going to say was that I was listening to a podcast with uh, Raul Powell and Jeff Gunlock uh, a couple of days ago. And Jeff Gunlock, I mean, it goes to what you're saying, Meb, which is that. That publicly, what Jeff Gunlack said was that when they when they talk about their strategies, the farthest out they'll go is eighteen months because that's the sweet spot where you know that's all that the market can accept in terms of, of an outlook. That if you go out any longer than that, you know, even three years or ten years, you're losing people because they just can't withstand that much time frame. Yeah, the tracking error yeah, that occurs over the time frame. Well, it, so Mark, how, how are you well, dealing with that? Oh, I was ahead, just going to say, well, Jeff, Jeff has mastered the narrative. You know, he's so good at storytelling and um, which, in my opinion, the investing approach you have, actually, there's so many that work, you know, and, and um, as long as your expectations are aligned with that investing approach, you could buy 10 dividend stocks in one country and God bless you, you'll probably do just fine. Um, but uh, you have to have the understanding and narrative of like what can happen. And so uh, Jeff is 
one of the best in the world about this. Uh, he often has very contrarian views. Um, he often makes big uh, projections. Uh, necessarily, they may, may or not ever end up in the portfolio, but he has very outsized opinions. Um, but but many different investing approaches work. Just, uh, you know, you just have to have the right understanding of, of how they worked and, and what to expect. That, that's one of the great things so about I, this business, isn't it? Is that, you know, everyone has the chance, everyone could possibly be right at any given point in time. So, you know, that's, that's sort of the beauty of this business, isn't it? That's, that's one of the things that you just have to love about it. Well, and you don't know whether that rightness is a, is a, a response to luck or to skill. <laughs> that's probably the trickiest part of it. So Mark, from, from the perspective, from your perspective, um, looking at expensive assets. So we've got, we've got yields at all time lows, bonds are expensive. That does translate into some equity markets being expensive. How are you navigating that? Um, and, and how are you, uh, you know, helping clients behaviorally helping or, or, um, uh, positioning portfolios that's, and thinking that's about that. That's basically what we do because we're top down uh, portfolio managers. So I spend, uh, I read about three hours a day, uh, about 400 pages of research every day. And then most of it is top down. So that's what I do is allocate, uh, allocate between industries, allocate between uh, countries. And uh, obviously the US, uh, US market has been performing very well on a worldwide basis over the last 10 years, exceeding uh, all other countries' uh, performance. But if you look a little more granular at where the performance comes from, and this will help you position for the future, uh, is that uh, when you measure pr uh, portfolio uh, returns or market returns at different uh, geographies of the world, you have to put them in a common currency. And because of the fact that the US dollar went up uh, 30, 40% uh, over the last seven, eight years, versus all other currencies, uh, obviously that helps explain part of the overperformance of uh, common currency uh, of the US market. So if you take that into account, and also the fact that you have to look at the sectors that represent the indices, the US market is uh, one of the highest, if not the highest market in the world that has a very uh, strong component of technology driven companies. And this is, has been performing very well. So the performance of the U.S. market is not really because it's the U.S., but it's because it has a strong weighting in technology stocks. Uh, so you have to ask yourself, looking forward, uh, am I, do I think that I'm going to generate the same type of return with the currency? Uh, do I think that the uh, sector that will be performing the best considering pricing and perspective and regulations. We saw this morning with Facebook and a few weeks ago with Google. So how, how am I confident that the names that provided the excess return I, I got on the U.S. market will continue to provide this over the next five, 10 years? And I think you can raise the issue that is, uh, these, instead of being a tailwind, will be a, a headwind. Uh, going forward. So this brings into uh, uh, into context the notion of diversifying uh, geographically into other markets that uh, Matt uh, referred to uh, that we've been uh, strong uh, proponents for many years. And of course, uh, when you manage money, you manage on a relative basis. You don't manage in absolutes. I feel that the absolute return of the stock market will be less over the next 
five, 10 years than it's been over the last 10 or 20 years. So you have less return. That's my perception is that even those stocks look expensive and they look on an absolute basis, but you compare them to real estate compared to the bonds and other types of uh, investment uh, possibilities for investors. I think stocks are less expensive on a relative basis than they were. Uh, I remember not too long ago, you could buy real estate uh, uh, income providing a real estate at uh, eight to 10 times uh, your monthly rental. And now it's 25 times. Uh, you could buy bonds uh, five, 10 years ago at 20 times because rates were 5%. Now you're buying bonds with 1% rate. So your PE on bonds is like a hundred times. So there's much more exaggeration on bonds and even real estate versus stocks. So I think stocks will continue to provide uh, better returns than the alternatives. It's just that the level of those excess return will not be as, as large as it was. And it brings into, but, but on the other hand, I think volatility will be as large as it's been before. So you have less return over time, but as much and maybe more volatility because uh, markets are stretched everywhere, which brings into concept the notion that uh, the difference between strategic, we used to think that strategic asset allocation provided the vast majority of the return and tactical asset allocation, which is the tweaking around the strategy, uh, added some return, but most of it was strategic. Maybe over the next 5, 10, 20 years, I think you'll see a shift from the importance of the strategy towards the tactical, which will uh, benefit from being more active and reacting to a different volatility. And the impact of, on the tactical will be even larger with the level of returns being lower. Lots to unpack there. So. Um... <clears throat> I think we so we, we we agree on some things. We we've been a bit of a uh, problem identifiers lately, which is to point out some problems. We've started to enter into the problem solving side of things, which is hey, listen, there actually are some cheaper assets. So making sure you're being more broad, have a broader viewpoint of the horizon, and making sure you're considering uh, emerging market assets, foreign assets. But again, those are stock assets. So. You've got the risk-free rate, the ways for investors to make return. Risk-free rate, you've got betas, then you've got skill, which Mark, you were just talking about. Then you've got assembly, and then you've got rebalancing. And so those are largely the skills I think that we can come up with as ways to solve this. And I would say limiting the conversation to just stocks or just bonds is, is um, uh, erroneous. I think we haven't talked about the commodities complex, gold, those types of assets. So uh, what are your thoughts on, on um, really getting outside of the investor's comfort zone? And I'll, I'll add that, uh, you know, the, the best performing asset over the last 20 years is gold. It's not U.S. stocks. And gold has also beaten bonds. Yeah, this is such so a Canadian, po this is such a Canadian podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just observing a, a, another a sacred cow. I am, I am now slaughtering another <laughs> sacred cow, just following in your footsteps. I, I have a little so, Bailey's so in my about, coffee, and I was waiting for the first person to say gold and how long it would it be. But I had, well, I had five minute over under, so it, uh, I don't have to drink it, thankfully. Uh, I love it. I love it. So we're going to have to increase diversification. Um, uh, liquidity, I think, is a function that has to be considered because liquidity is your ability to change to changing circumstances. So I think sometimes the infrastructure, private equity, real estate assets can suffer liquidity constraints that 
don't allow for that adaptation that we should maybe address. And then um, finally, what are you guys thinking on the assembly side? But uh, there's a lot there. Um, any, anyone want to take any of that? Again, with it? Just on the uh, alternative, we, we, because we talked of bonds and stocks, but I think one asset category, which has been uh, not very uh, looked into in a favorable way over the last 20 years was cash. Cash was not, it was the leftover. It was not an asset category, something that you need that was there to pay the rent or pay the fees on your portfolio, something that had, so really had no value. So you either had bonds or you, you had, you had stocks. I think in a world where you have less relative return, you have more volatility and where bonds represent a real risk of losing money versus what it was 10, 15 years ago. I think the value of, of cash has, has basically increased and the return on cash will be viewed not as what is cash earning me while I'm holding it, but the option it gives you when you have volatile period to convert that cash, $100, remaining $100 for sure, into assets that have gone down momentarily in value, then the, the, the return on the cash is the little return it gives you while you're waiting, but basically the option it gives you to participate, which bonds used to do, but now with rates so low and being more, uh, vulnerable to capital depreciation if rates go up a little. I think uh, there's a risk element to bonds which didn't used to be there, which you don't have with cash. And echoing on that, you know, I think um, it's always uh, seductive when you get a bunch of professional investors and allocators uh, like this crew. You know, we could argue and debate for like 10 hours on some mm -hmm. of these super esoteric topics. Um, and when you have certain investors listening, it's like listening to politics, right? Uh, where often it's like the final five or 10%, you know, as advisors, um, you know, the things that I would say that we just assume are known, like, hey, how much you save and invest in the first place is going to dominate probably what your investments do. Uh, next, you need to have a diversified set of investments, you know, some global stocks, some global bonds, some global real assets, like all these things. And then we finally get to some of the areas uh, that um, assume that you've done the first 80 percent. But a lot of people uh, listening who aren't necessarily pros um, don't often know that they think we're discussing like the whole kit and caboodle. And so this point you make about cash is so important because so many investors uh, approach investing as I want to optimize the magical mean variance risk return. You know, I'm, I want the highest return possible. And what you find in real life, it's not that simple. Most people universally, particularly once they've been through it, uh, they look and say, yeah, I can take this much risk. I can take my portfolio going down by a quarter or a third or half. And then it happens and they're like, oh, dear God, like no way, because it often happens when everything else in the world is going, uh, uh, it hits the fan. So the economy is going down. People are losing jobs. They're the zombie apocalypse like this year. And the problem with most buy and hold sort of allocations is they have a pretty high correlation to what's going on in the real world. And so it all happens at once. So this idea of cash, um, you know, gives you this, it may not be the optimal portfolio, but the number one rule of investing is you have to have a bankroll to play. You can't go to the casino and bet if you have zero dollars. And so if you get taken out of the game, I mean, how many advisors have clients that said, 
2009, I can't take it anymore. Sold all my stocks, never to buy any again. And then maybe in 2014, 2017 said, okay, now I'm ready to get back in. I'll get back in when things are more certain. Same thing this year. People probably sold everything in March. Can't take it anymore. Goodbye. Uh, certainly in the internet bubble. And so um, the cash gives you not only that sleep at night. Okay. Uh, I'm not fully maxed out, but also um, the optionality, like you mentioned, like, hey, when things go crazy and we find uh, these massive opportunities, when in real estate does go back to uh, super attractive valuations and these people are forced into selling because they're over leveraged, uh, it's, a, it's a great thing to have around. And plus, that's the whole point of this, right? Like, remember, money is only a means to an end. And so, um, you know, taking on uh, just massive leverage, uh, cash is underappreciated. Now, uh, that doesn't mean you should put it under your mattress, like my grandfather used to do. But, you know, at least try to put it somewhere where it gets a little bit of yield. But I, I think that's a really important point you hit on that uh, once you've talked with enough clients and people, you realize is, is a, a benefit, but also a mistake a lot of people make. Um, and particularly 2020, I think has reminded us all that, hey, you need uh, a decent cushion for when your emergency fund or when things happen, because people always say, yeah, I have this emergency fund and expect emergencies never happen. They happen like every year, something, right? <laughs> you know, so divorce, somebody gets sick, there's a pandemic, uh, civil war, who knows? But I think that's one of the most uh, important points uh, that, that could be made. Yeah. I, I, so, I, so how do, I was just okay. going to say, I, I think it's, it's interesting when, when people look at cash and, and, you know, there's both the opportunity cost and the opportunity that you guys are talking about, but it, it's kind of complicated, isn't it? When somebody like Ray Dalio comes along and says that cash is trash, that, that would motivate investors to do something other than holding on to their cash. It kind of complicates. Can I, can I pick on Ray real quick? His co-CIO <laughs> Uh, said one of the most preposterous things I've ever heard in all of investing. I mean, there's certain comments that if you make should disqualify you totally from commenting on a particular topic or subject. And it was and not only that, it was like possibly the worst time ever. And it was in like Davos or something. And I, I'm going to get this slightly wrong. Um, but he basically said in January that uh, you're never going to have like a recession again or like there's like the U.S. economy and stock market, you know, was is immune to, um, you know, something happening. And I'll look it up while you guys are talking to get it exactly right. But it literally was like a month later. I was like, how you guys have such and Ray in particular, such an appreciation for history and has seen all these things, you know, Chinese uh, stock market, Russian stock market, 1917, 1949 went to zero. Like you see all these things that have happened to make a statement like that is so preposterous. Uh, it, it seems so, you know, weird anyway, sorry. For anyone, for anyone, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead Mark. I, I have a huge respect for Ray Dalio. Uh, at least he makes me think and he has some perspective. And uh, of course it's right. When you measure, the performance of different asset categories. You look at stocks, U.S. stocks, bonds. So you say, if you purchase a bond, this is the return that you would have made. Same with stock. And when you calculate the return of cash, basically you look at T-bills and say, this is the return of cash. But cash, people don't 
have cash to keep cash forever. They have cash for a certain period of time where if it, an opportune time comes, they will convert that cash into good investments. So when you calculate the return of cash and you don't calculate what's the impact of converting cash into depleted value of assets that you buy and make profit on, uh, then you miss you miss the, the point about cash. Cash is not the return you're getting while you're holding it. It's the opportunity it provides, but how can you calculate that? I know it because I've been doing it and using cash for 25 years. So I know the value of cash, but if you look at the financial table that gives you what as cash provided you for 25 years, I think you're missing the point. Well, I think there's a couple of things. Now I'm gonna be defending Ray because Ray is an institutional money manager. So when you're talking about um, those five levels, you've got risk-free rate, betas, skill, assembly, rebalance, right? You are talking about skill. Ray is referring to cash as trash in the context of a risk parity portfolio, which takes a balance of all asset classes, weights them against the economic regimes, and that's your base portfolio. That is the no-bet portfolio for Ray and in almost all cases, historically, the risk parity portfolio has dominated the performance of crash and it's done it with a very good sharp ratio because it's maximally diversified. And so if you want to think about the world from a preparation perspective rather than a prediction perspective, it makes total sense that cash would be trash. You're holding all asset classes in a risk parity portfolio based on the weights to the different regimes that can manifest. So you're always prepared. Thus that portfolio outperforms cash over meaningful timeframes, which are meaningful to institutions about a hundred percent of the time. So again, the context of his comments, I think is very important from the standpoint of what he means by cash is trash. What's interesting to me is he's also said that bonds are going to be challenged and are trash, which is, maybe a function of the the, uh, the the MMT philosophy passing through the Overton window and getting larger acceptance where you're gonna have yield curve control, you're gonna have rate control and bonds just aren't gonna be volatile at all. And cash equals bonds. Thus, you have no volatility in the rate side so that when you go through a period of um, you know deflation, uh, you don't have uh, bonds giving you that potential boost to the portfolio return. So it's interesting his his viewpoint and you have to understand where he's coming from, I think, which then leads to what are the other asset classes? So there is no safe haven asset right no, now and, to lay up. And to your point, right? It, it used. Yeah. So, so now, now bonds, what do we do? Maybe rates won't be going up because they'll be managed by central banks. Uh, but the flip side is you're going to lose right. on the currency. So uh, either the, the bonds rates are going to go up or you're going to get the clobbered by holding a currency that goes down. So again, basic, basic that's right. Currency so is a relative it's same, game. It's the same investment decision uh, that you're making in allocating your resources well, throughout the world. And more importantly, what, what's the out is currencies. Speaking of currencies, right. what, what's happening with the Canadian dollar? I'm trying to figure out where I'm skiing this year. And, you know, I'd love <laughs> to get up to the powder highway, but this Canadian dollar, us dollar, man, it's, it's, it's making some moves. Might stay in Utah. Uh, yeah, I may. I may just stay local this year. <laughs> see where I see. Yeah, where it's I'm not noise. sure it's the Canadian dollar going up as much as it's the U.S. dollar going down. The dollar index yeah, ratio exactly. uh, took a plunge since um, since March, uh, and mm -hmm. 
because it had gone up in March and then it, it went back down. And basically, if you look at the performance of the U.S. dollar, a lot has had to to do in the last 10 years with interest rates in the U.S. being higher. And so even though you saw the U.S. as a, a solidly and uh, getting through the, the past recession in a better ways, the rates were higher there than they were elsewhere. So that helped the uh, the U.S. dollar and it helped uh, uh, returns on U.S. Uh, denominated assets. But going forward, uh, you could argue that maybe the way uh, we're printing money in the U.S., maybe uh, the U.S. dollar is going to is going to be under pressure, and maybe you should have a higher rates in, in the U.S., which sure is not going to happen because it's of the debt level. So I think the U.S. dollar is going to be under pressure, and I think emerging market uh, currencies are going to be doing quite well. So how does an investor take advantage of that, right? So, so again, um, in Ray's defense, he mentions explicitly currencies for that reason as being something that needs to be managed. So we've got the typical investor with a 60-40 portfolio. We've said, oh my gosh, bonds aren't going to do it. Um, currencies could be deleterious or beneficial. So we, we have to manage those. Are there any other easy, easy opportunities? How about things like um, trading uh, volatility? I know, Meb, you've got a, a fund that does that. So explicitly, you know, just about every asset that you're going to buy is a, um, a short vol trade. And so having something in your portfolio that explicitly represents long vol in crisis may be an opportunity to provide further diversification to the portfolio. Thoughts? Um, yeah, real quick. I mean, if you were to look at most traditional portfolios and say what's missing, uh, the starting point for almost everyone is, is like you mentioned, a 60-40 or 50-50 stocks, bonds. Traditionally, it's in their own country. Uh, I talk sort of ad nauseum about this, this concept of home country bias. You know, people put way too much money in their own country in the U.S. of the global stock market. People put 80 percent in U.S. stocks. It should be half. It's even worse in countries like y'all's. Uh, because the market cap as a percentage of the total is down, I think, uh, you know, 5%. And if people are putting 50, 80% in Canadian stocks, it's a huge active bet and maybe a good bet. Uh, but, but it's a very active bet. And so the thing, and this, this is everywhere. This is Japan, Australia, UK, um, Brazil, Russia, everyone does it now. Um, so the first step is we always tell people, you know, get, Use the global market portfolio as a starting point. The global market portfolio, if you just bought everything in the world, all the public assets, you end up with roughly half stocks, half bonds, half U.S., uh, half, half ex-U.S. Um, and, and certainly you can tilt your own country and, and bonds your own country for reasons that are valid. But the good news is that so the things that are missing from that portfolio uh, moving towards the global market portfolio is a lot of other foreign stock markets. Uh, which we've mentioned are, I think, are a lot cheaper. Uh, and so having that exposure, I think, is, is a no-brainer. Second is people, I think, in general, uh, they have real asset exposure. And you guys are a little different because you tend to have uh, a greater appreciation for uh, commodity type of investments. But uh, most Americans I talk to don't. So um, under this real asset category, I'll put tips, uh, real estate, and most people have a huge real estate portion, but it's just their house. And so that's very undiversified. Um, so having both corporate and, and preferably uh, uh, residential real estate exposure globally, I think is a big one. I love farmland uh, investing, but that's a notoriously impossible asset class to allocate to. Uh, and then lastly is the variations of, of commodities. 
Um, those are no brainers, but usually a lot of people are missing some of those um, in, in some format. The big three categories, global stocks, global bonds, global real assets, usually uh, people are, are woefully under allocated. And then you can get into the other weird stuff. I think the biggest opportunity right now is, is certainly value. Value has been absolutely demolished, uh, not just globally, uh, foreign markets versus the U.S., but within the U.S. this year, small cap value is darn near down, I think, 50 percent this year. Uh, in, in March. And so uh, you have a scenario where the U.S. market is, is, has had some um, big distortions that they give you some opportunities uh, there. Then you start to get into active strategies. I love trend following. That's, that'll be number hour two or three, which we haven't even got into. Um, a fun white paper we did this year during the pandemic, which no one read uh, because they were dealing with pandemic, was, was basically about investing in markets at all-time highs. And the name of the paper is, is investing at all-time highs a good idea? No, it's a great idea. And uh, the takeaway is that if you just bought markets at all-time highs and, and set a buffer like 5%, 10% and otherwise sat in cash, you actually did just fine. Um, anyway, uh, it's free to download online. But, uh, but And then lastly, you get to something talking about volatility trading and, and tail risk hedging, which obviously looks uh, great this year, but often as a cost. You know, so many of these things are kind of in order. If you go down like the investment pyramid, uh, you know, we talk about the old food pyramid, how it's changed over time. It used to be you eat 10 servings a day of pasta, cereal, you know, <laughs> and everything. I think I think no one accepts that anymore. Although I did have a donut this morning, with my son. Um, <laughs> you know, it's inverted. Uh, and same thing with investing. Like you do all these basics and then you start to get to the end thing. So my, my big one here is... Uh, Global exposure, particularly value at this point, I think is going to be a monster, uh, particularly emerging markets and emerging market. Most people have about 3% emerging markets, uh, which is far, far, far too low, in my opinion. Yeah. If you look at the performance of emerging Asia, it's, it's pretty indicative of that, generally speaking. Yeah. And one thing that, that is a, seems as a very high level observation, but interesting is you look at the... Uh, the way, especially institutions, but even the high net worth individuals have been acting, uh, which tells you that they don't, they trust less bonds to do the job of uh, managing volatility in overall portfolios because rates have been low and they're low now than they ever been, but they started being quite low two, three, four or five years ago. And it's funny because this coincided with the fact that the popularity of uh, private equity, real estate, bunch of assets which are not trading on a daily basis on the exchange have started to pick up. It's as if institutions started to realize that their bond portfolio would not be doing the same stabilizing uh, to stabilize the portfolios when stock markets went down. So we needed to find something else and they, they couldn't find something else. So instead of buying an asset, asset that the value is given every day, every second on the exchange, will buy an asset that really we can smooth the value. So they started getting more and more into real estate, into privates, a bunch of stuff that you don't have a stock market that gives you a value every second on it. So it, it gives, gives the impression that the overall portfolio is not moving as much. So you're reducing volatility as if investing in a small company when markets are going down 30% protects you and the value if you wanted to sell 100 shares in that company, that would go down also 30%. So I think 
by looking at the way the money is going, it's moving away from stuff that has the perception of being volatile. It's just the training that's volatile. The, the, the real long-term value hasn't changed that much. It's not because markets go down 30% got the, that the, the real value of the asset you're holding goes down 30% for the next five, 10 years. It's a moment and uh, a point in time when this happens. And it would also affect the other assets, but since they're not listed, you can't see that. So I think that one way that the institutions, in particular pension funds, have wanted to manage that volatility is going into privates. And and you, you, you used to see that stuff that were not liquid used to trade at a discount or the value was discount. It was something like half. If you buy the, the same company, if it was on the exchange, you'd pay two times the PE that you would if you buy it privates. Now it's the opposite. The fact that you're, you're illiquid is worth more. So people are buying from privates more than they would if it's listed every day. So this is a funny turn of events that I think shows that people are desperately trying to find something that's not subject to volatility. And, and real quick, you know, that's super important and interesting in this cycle because every institution uh, is counting on the private equity LBOs to be their savior. Um, and there is a feature. I mean, the feature, you know, what I used to consider to be a bug is a feature, which is you buy these, you're stuck holding these funds for 10 years. You can't get out. And that's a great thing for many of these institutions because otherwise they would uh, behave poorly like uh, all individuals would. As soon as they're underperforming, they would sell a fund after two years. So these long holding periods is good. The problem is as the valuations and everyone is herded into this asset class, uh, as the valuation spread has totally collapsed and in, and in some cases inverted, like you mentioned, they still expect the outperformance. And that is the fallacy in my mind. All of a sudden, if you're counting on LBOs to be your savior and generate 15% a year uh, to get you to this magic 8%, uh, good luck. You know, that, that made sense to me when you had these huge valuation spreads of the privates, but now you don't. And they, it's like, they don't, they don't acknowledge that. But here's the hilarious thing is that you're in a business where you won't know the answer to that question for 10 years. <laughs> so the career risk yeah. doesn't matter because you'll mm -hmm. be gone. You know, if you're working at CalPERS yeah. and you say, all right, we're all in an LBOs. We magically pr project 15%. That'll get us to our eight. Well, Five years from now, you'll probably be retired, yeah. sitting on a big pension or moved on. And even if you're wrong, who knows, you can blame it on somebody else. And so uh, it it is an interesting setup. I think it's going to be a big problem uh, in, in the next decade is these pension funds starting to, to feel some real pain uh, because of a lot of these expectations. Some of them are, are reasonable, um, but in my mind, it's going to be uh, it's going to be well, a and problem. And once you're in, you're in. And this is the, the point I was making earlier about liquidity. So they lack the liquidity for adaptation and change. And private equity is largely a bet on global growth with benign inflation and abundant liquidity. That's what it's a bet on. And if you start to change those dynamics, make them inflationary, compromise global growth, then you're going to be stuck with a bunch of LBOs that don't make sense. The cost of financing changes, the assumptions um, and the forward looking assumptions all change and thus the return stream changes. But you're locked in for 10 years, as you say, like these are these are the uh, implications of that asset class and people are locking in it 
uh, institutions largely walking at all time highs. I also think there's a, yeah, I'll just finish the the last part is the halo effect, right? The, The vast majority of the returns from that asset class come from a very, very small number of deals. And so for an individual investor to think that they have some expertise or access um, is really a tough, it's a tough bar to cross in my mind from, from the standpoint of, of retail investors. It's funny because uh, anyway, I've been in, the, in business long enough uh, that uh, I remember way back then that the monthly statement you sent to clients uh, of their portfolio didn't have market value. So they, it told you you had 100 shares of BCE, 100 shares of CN, 100 shares, but you didn't have market value. So now yeah. it, the introduction of technology and everything, then they started to say, okay, now the monthly statement will, will, will put the value. And I remember investment advisors being traumatized. Oh, gee, what happens if it goes down? Because when they showed you only yeah. the value, you still had 100 shares after a month. But now maybe you still had 100 shares, but it was worth less. So it was... Brokers were terrified by this situation. So look back 50 years later, you see this uh, private things. uh, So people don't want to be seen to show the value of those assets. So it's it's quite funny. Yeah. Yeah. The more you look, the worse you do. It it creates a a really uh, nice optical illusion, doesn't it? I mean, you know, that provides that emotional piece it's, of it's mind. It's the same logic as Matt yeah. was mentioning. You yeah. say, oh, you should buy these assets and keep it for 10 years or 20 years. So it would be much easier if we didn't have to provide the market value of those who say, buy this and we'll we'll talk in 10 years. I'll tell you, tell you what, what you did. But now they have value every day. So it's the same concept. All right, so so we're we're I think we're drilling down deeper and deeper. Meb mentioned trend following. I'm we're certainly fans of that. That's one factor of many. There's skewness. There's carry. Um, all all factors that you can layer in and add together to provide different return streams that are non correlated to the general portfolio. Do we want to uh, dig into that a little bit, or uh, how much? Um, how much time do you guys have? Or have it's early morning here. You guys, uh, you guys are the limiting factor. So uh, let me know. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's go in. So we've talked about some asset classes, right? So maybe you you highlighted that. Well, you got stocks, bonds in the real bucket. You know, that's going to have your gold and real estate and things like that. We talked a little bit about the about the vol bucket or the tail hedge protection. Uh, bucket, which is an interesting bucket, often underused. Well, now let's think about, you know, sort of the, the, the factor type portfolios, trend following, global macro, systematic global macro, commodity trading generally. So if, if there is this, this sense of inflation, which I think there is institutions, certainly from our perspective, there's an institutional interest from a, from a real inflationary hedge, uh, basket in portfolios. Um, so what about the strategy side? Maybe, maybe, maybe you talked about trend following. You can yeah, that so, off a little bit. Um, Tell us what it is, what it isn't. Let's start the base case first. I think this is important. A lot of investors um, don't don't have a clear understanding of this. If you talk about when you buy a passive index, uh, there's really, in my mind, only one passive index. This was uh, really popularized in the 1970s, which is the market cap weighted portfolio. So if you think of stocks, uh, it's something like the S&P 500, where you're putting most of your money in the biggest stocks. So the stocks that are... Uh, $2 trillion almost valuations like Amazon and Apple, Walmart, uh, Berkshire Hathaway. You put most of your money in those, so 3 4% all the way down to the, to the little guys. And um, the beauty of that investing style is that 
it hits upon something that's super important in investing in businesses. And, and I think venture capitalists really understand this. Uh, it's become much more uh, uh, obvious in public markets over the last five, 10 years. There's a lot of research papers that come out. And that is investment returns are, are dominated by power laws, which are the vast majority of returns are dependent on a small minority of stocks. So the McDonald's, the Amazon, the Walmarts that have gone up 10, 100, 1,000 times uh, generate all the returns of the index. And that's beauty of market cap indexing. You own more as it goes up and less as it goes down. So that's a great way to invest, great starting point. The problem with that, and, and that by definition is the world's greatest trend following strategy. You do not do anything other than buy more of a stock as it goes up and less, you own less as it goes down. The problem with that strategy is it has no tether to fundamentals whatsoever. So if you talk to uh, newbie investors and say, you know, hey, here's this index. They say, I invest in the US stock index. And I say, what does that mean to you? And, you know, and they'll often say, well, it's the biggest companies. And I say, by what measure? And they'll say, well, you know, like Apple, it's got the most earnings and revenue. I say, no, 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 no. It's only price of the stock times shares outstanding. Company could have no earnings. Uh, it could have little earnings uh, or revenue like Tesla and still be a top 10 stock. So that's the problem. So the good part is you're guaranteed to own the winners. The bad part is uh, there's no tether to fundamentals. And so the problem with market cap investing is that when it gets to extremes, um, you, you tend to overweight uh, uh, bubbles and underweight kind of busts. And so um, any investing methodology other than market cap weighting usually outperforms market cap weighting. So equal weighting, value weighting, volatility weighting, doesn't matter what it is historically will outperform market cap weighting I mean, and not by a ton. I mean, we're talking about like a percent per year, uh, but usually worth, worth doing it. Obviously we are um, uh, big fans of value. The two big pillars for us, value and trend value goes back a hundred years time of, of uh, Ben Graham, certainly longer than that. Everyone understands value is applied to the rest of your life, buying your house, buying a car. Uh, it seems crazy in any other aspect of life, not to use value. Um, and then trend and, you know, trend as market cap weighting works great, but it also works on asset class levels in general. Um, value is something people get. So I'm not going to harp on that too long other than it, it can go long periods of waxing and waning in the opportunity set, which I think is pretty fantastic right now. Um, but it's also important on the value side. You've got a bit of a unique, unique view on value too, though. That value is important because that's... it's not just that you're inv investing in the cheap stuff. It's also that you're avoiding the expensive. And so uh, it's like the, the old poem. It's like keeping your mind when everyone else is going crazy around you. Is that Kipling? Um, is, is important because it's easy it's to get it sucked into the story and the narrative of these companies. Um, again, like the 90s bubble, that was so much fun. Uh, I loved it, but you know, it, it's, uh, there's, there's usually an other side to the mountain too. And so the problem in 98, when the stock market hit a valuation at 34 and then eventually on its way up to 45, went up 50%. Well, then you had, uh, over a decade of no returns. And in the case of Japan, you've had three decades of no returns. Uh, so the, the hangover can be severe, the, the bigger the party, um, so I love value, but it's not just about investing in the cheap. It's also about investing in the expensive. And then trend, you know, you can apply that across asset classes to asset classes. And the whole point of that, in my mind, it's equally as uh, an attractive as a strategy is buy and hold. 
but for different reasons. The problem with buy and hold investing is you do nothing. So for a lot of investors, that's tough. Like you go down 10%, you go down 20. And the, the you know, advice is, look, you rebalance, uh, we just buy and hold and, and that's fine, but it's hard. It's hard for certain people because it often happens at the same time as everything else going, going to shit. Um, trend following is equally, I think, a, a reasonable strategy. The problem with trend following is you often look stupid, particularly compared to your neighbor, which is the worst stupid you could be because, uh, you know, Buffett talks about this. He says, you know, it's not people always say it's greed and fear that drive markets, but he's like, it really, it's envy. So there's nothing worse than your neighbor getting rich, you know, coming over and talking, say, talking about his Bitcoin and talking about his Tesla stock. And today it'd be Airbnb um, and the vacation he's going on. Well, people don't go on vacations anymore, but the, the house he's buying, all that stuff. And so trend following is hard because you often look worse, you know, when, when one market is booming or particularly in times of euphoria. Uh, and you tend to look better during the really long bear market. So it's a nice sort of yin yang. Uh, we are unique in that I don't know anyone as far as an advisor that allocates as much to trend, but we tend to be pretty uh, oddballs and I'm okay with that. Um, that's just two perspectives. Uh, you know, I'm happy to go into more later uh, or in depth, but well, I think, I think it's, I actually think it's interesting. So how does trend And by the way, um, Meb's got just an absolute ton of research on this, whether it's asset allocation, comparing different ways of that, um, um, trend following, shareholder yield being a good measure of value. So that's all can be found on, on uh, Cambria funds and whatnot. But specifically, the, the personality of trend, like why is, why is that complimentary from um, a 60-40 perspective? Because I here's, here's the problem that, with buy and hold. Let's say you live in Texas and you're overweight energy which at one point used to be almost a third of the S&P 500 weight. Well, it's now at two. And the energy sector is down, I don't know, 70%. And that is not just um, almost irrecoverable from a portfolio perspective, because the sad rule of compounding is that uh, there's a kink. And the further you go down, the more you got to go to get out. and down 50 means you got to go up 100. Down 75, which is where energy's at, you got to go up 300%. Um, and meanwhile, there's often a lot of opportunity when things are down 60, 80, 90%, as long as they don't go to zero, like buggy whips. But um, but the but the struggle is that you stay in the game. You know, back to what we talked about earlier. Like if you don't have any money, you can't play. And so trend following uh, has the ability to say, you know, you're going to get out as things are declining. The hard part, the cycle, and, and that does a good job if, if things are, um, you know, in these long bear markets. So if you ask someone in Greece, Brazil, uh, Russia, Cyprus, you know, if, if trend following was helpful over the past decade, say, oh, my God, save, save my behind. You have someone in the U.S. said, no, it's been, a, it's been a detractor because the biggest problem with trend following is you have a low batting average. You know, you, you often have lots of losing trades. And people hate that. They love the certainty. So you have like four losing trades in a row. Are you kidding me? This system's broken. It doesn't work. Sideways markets are terrible for trend following. And trend following in the U.S. has been atrocious uh, the past decade because the market will go up. It'll start to roll over and then ramp right back up. Uh, we've seen that a few times. Saw it in what was it, end of 2018, again in 2020. Um, but, but in general, as far as like a desert island strategy, if you were to tell me, Matt, you got to put all your money in a strategy uh, you know, I, I love trend following because you're, you're, 
I think it's more, uh, what's the word, anti-fragile, more, more robust to at least all the possible outcomes. And, and going, to, let's be clear, going to zero sucks. That's a terrible feeling. <laughs> There's nothing worse. So, absolutely. So, Mark, uh, on on your side of things, what are the what are those? Are there any types of unique strategies like that that you're bringing into the portfolio? that explicitly uh, target these sort of different factor exposures to complement yeah, the 60-40 prefer to be a, a trend forecaster, <laughs> trend follower. Uh, it works better for me. Uh, a lot more hard work, but uh, uh, no, we, uh, uh, and sometimes the factors, it's based on history too. What would this type of asset do in this type of circumstances. The circumstances change all the time. So uh, uh, they keep reviewing their, their model to adapt to new circumstances. So I'm not, uh, I'm not a big uh, fan of uh, uh, systems that you put in place today that you can back test that it, it would have worked 10 years ago, but probably won't uh, in the future. Because uh, stuff changes all the time. So you I think you, I think but you need to that's fine. So so what, walk us through your process. What what do you do? Exactly. Than what you, Basically, what, what I do is I read. What's, what's, what's I read your extra sauce? That people uh, from people that are way more intelligent and knowledgeable than I am, and I read a lot, and I try to figure what's what's going to be the future. And it's tough to predict the future, but if you're right, uh, it's it's it can be quite uh, lucrative. Uh, and, but uh, if you come back to the notion of value versus tech, I think. Uh, what you have to realize is, is the notion of tech. Uh, I don't think Facebook is a tech company. Uh, I think in ten years' time, we'll, we'll, we'll say this is this was anti-tech. It's it's not tech at all. It's not because you communicate with a computer that it becomes tech, uh, and not everything that has to do with a computer is tech. Uh, so uh, uh, I have a hard time with that. But tech performed well in the last ten years, fifteen years, because. Technology company perform better. Their earnings went up in value more than value stock, which you can expect. But people, one thing they don't realize is rates went down a lot. And it's like bonds. When you have a 30-year bond and rates go down, there's more pickup in the value than on a three-year bond. And typically, tech companies pay less dividend. So therefore, their duration, if you can adapt that wording for stocks, their duration is much longer than value. So when rates went down substantially in the last 10, 15 years, the impact on long duration stocks, which were tech stocks, was, was amplified. So it's not just that the earnings of the company is in tech perform better. It's also the, the multiples you're willing to pay and the impact of lower rates were amplified on tech stocks. But I think this will uh, be tougher to achieve uh, going forward. So uh, uh, I agree with Matt that value is, uh, is due for a comeback. Will value perform better than tech? I'm not sure. But the difference between the return of both, I think, will be much smaller than it's been in the last 10 years, for sure. So I, I'm not a big fan of machine uh, portfolio management. I think uh, uh, humans have to continue to be, have a significant uh, value added. Uh, and I think that the 60-40, I think uh, going forward, if I were to bet what would be the best strategy, I think 80-20 will be a better strategy. You put 80% in stock and 20% in cash, uh, I think and you're active and you try to forecast markets a little more and you react to volatility, volatility and you become 
actively involved. Uh, and I think this will perform better than the 60-40 that you don't move around uh, and with less risk because the 40 in bonds, I think, is much more riskier than it used to be. But the 20% of cash has, has no risk, uh, at least not in value. So I think this will perform better. And this, uh, and I think this idea will become more uh, popular going forward uh, as we go along and bring into uh, uh, more in focus active management, which has been killed in the last 10, 15 years with passive management, which really uh, perform, uh, seem to have performed better. Uh, although for individual, it has not because people, instead of being active with stocks, they became active with ETFs. So they were not really uh, passive in terms of their investment. So really not a lot of people, even though a lot of people use ETF, not a lot uh, are passive, So which Basically, they lack the same skills. It's the same skills whether you trade stocks or trade ETF. It's the same still the skill that is necessary to perform. So uh, that's why you haven't seen uh, people using ETF performing better in the last 10, 15 years than you have seen people using stocks before ETFs were popular. Well, this is the, the classic uh, investor performance versus investment performance argument, exactly. right? which is that it's all the good behavior versus bad behavior. And, and so, so Mark, given that, that you believe in, in or that you're moving in the direction of cutting down the, the fixed income portion of a portfolio down to 20 and increasing the rest up to 80, uh, what are some of the areas that, that are in the 80% that you think would provide uh, the ballast? I think we've talked about value providing some ballast to, to growth. Uh, or versus trend following or versus growth. But what are some of the other areas in the equity portfolio that, that you would use that would provide that, that uh, correlation or non-correlation? Yeah, we're not, we're not, we're not there yet in, ter in terms of converting the 60 to 80 uh, as a strategic uh, yeah. weighting, uh, but we've increased uh, our allocation to stocks uh, five, six years ago, and we just did that uh, a few weeks ago. So the, the strategic asset allocation puts it more, a little more emphasis on, on stock, but we're trying to compensate that by having more cash. We've been uh, uh, very strong uh, holders of cash over the last uh, few years and it's performed extremely well uh, for us. So, uh, uh, and we keep doing the same thing now that we've been doing for, uh, we've known each other for a while in terms of di diversification, uh, uh, we have a strong percentage of our holdings uh, in the internationals, and it's always been the case. Uh, and we're uh, doing this in an active way. We believe strongly in Asia, and we have a strong percentage of our portfolios in Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, China, uh, Japan. Japan people, uh, it's funny yeah. because they talk about Japan and say, oh, we're trying to avoid the Japanese problem and everybody's saying with low rates and maybe uh, debt level going uh, overboard and everything. So and people say, well, uh, so Japan has been going nowhere for 20 years. Look at their GDP. It's one of the lowest in the world. Uh, why, what they don't realize, if you look at the GDP per capita of all uh, G7 countries, it's the highest in the world in terms of growth. So they do doing very well. So the, the headwind they've had is because their population is is slowly being reduced as uh, age and uh, let's say they're getting older and they don't have any immigration. 
but uh, that's why the reason why there's some sort of stability on the political scene in Japan is because people are getting richer. There's less people of them around, but they're, uh, they're getting richer, which tends to fa favorize the stability on a, a political front. So uh, I think Japan is, uh, is going to be continue doing very well, especially as Asia is emerging more and more as a, a powerhouse. And now they, they just signed a few weeks ago a, uh, a common marketplace for Asia. So that's going to help. Uh, so uh, uh, Europe is a basket case. Uh, some are doing well, some not so well. So th this is what we do. We, we read stuff and we try to allocate. And our horizon, even though our clients have a 10, 15, 20-year horizon, our horizon is not 20 years, but it's not six months either. It's three, four, five years. There's not stuff that I buy that I think is going to work well in 10 years, but not in three years. Uh, so I think there's a there's a difference between six months and three, four years. But past three, four years, if you don't think it's going to work out in the next three, four years, but in 10 years, well, wait three, four years to buy this stuff. Uh, so uh, that's our time horizon when we make moves. Uh, we don't trade a lot. We trade maybe 20% uh, of our portfolio every year, which is not a lot. So we're we try to be right and not change our mind. But this year has been exceptional because markets, we haven't, we hadn't pre predicted a pandemic. So, uh, but uh, we were a lot of cash and we're very active. So we traded a lot this year and our asset allocation has been uh, doing very well. So this is what cash allows you to do. So uh, people were asking us last year, uh, markets are up 15, 20%. You have 10, 15, 20% of cash in the portfolio. It's no, doing nothing for us. But this year, no, we're not hearing that. So I think we'll have more occasions to do this over the next five, 10 years. And as our clients are getting used to it, uh, well, some of them have been used to it for 28 or 25 years. But even the new clients, I think that there's a rationale behind that. Yeah, I mean, it's a very thoughtful, it's a very thoughtful strategy. I think, I think you're, you're, just, you're just demonstrating that you've, that as equity markets have become more valuable and more higher valuation and bond markets the same, you've become more defensive and, and assumed larger and larger cash positions. So coming into February, March of this year with the, uh, the break of the pandemic and the break in the market, uh, you, you were in a very advantageous position uh, with cash. Uh, so I can see, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to see why it's made you a bigger believer in maintaining cash positions throughout uh, hist historical yes, allocation. When right? you have I mean, a, a view over five or 10 years, you have to go where your beliefs are. I think stocks will perform better than fixed income instrument over the next 10 years. So I'm pretty optimistic about this. I don't know if the return will be 7%, 10%, 5%. But I'm pretty sure on average it's going to be better than bonds or even or other categories of, of investment. So I'm pretty confident with that. I don't know what bonds will be doing. Maybe rates will go up 1% one, one or 2%. So I, I will lose money. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to lose money with cash. Maybe I'm not going to do a big return, but I'm not going to lose money. But there will be times where a stock will get hit in the market. I don't care if I have 20 or 25% cash. I want this to happen because I, I invest that cash. I buy stocks and I sell those in six months or nine months. So volatility will become my friend. So it, instead of being afraid of volatility, now that I have the means to take advantage of it, it becomes my friend. So I think it's, it makes sense and reduces risk and volatility is well managed, even not just in the portfolio, but in the perception of clients. Uh, I think it's a, it's a positive. Yep. All right.
Well, that has been a long and wandering conversation, gentlemen. I think we covered a lot of areas and topics and approaches to thinking about what to do with the uh, 60-40 problem and 5,000-year lows and yields. You got anyone else have any final thoughts? I think one area, just to, just to put a, a final idea that most people have almost nothing allocated to, you know, as you think about emerging markets, uh, as the year winds down, it's always a good time to reflect. And, and two comments. One is that, you know, most people listen to this are probably advisors or people that have advisors, but, uh, it's, it's great time at end of year to reflect and, um, you know, review your portfolio because 2020 was a great stress test. You know, do you, do you have your house in order, uh, Obviously, it was a painful year, but, you know, we're the guardrails in place, uh, you know, like a, a football team, um, American football team. You know, did you have your game plan in place before you got to the line of scrimmage or are you just winging it like so many investors are? But anyway, one investment opportunity, emerging markets, just put it in perspective. You know, um, you ask most people what what percentage of world GDP they think of with emerging markets. Uh, they think it's a, it's a fraction, but really it's, you know, it's over half. The U.S. is only a quarter, by the way. Um, emerging markets have 85% of the world's population, but stock market market capitalization is only like 15%. And if you look at the tailwinds for the next decade, higher EPS growth, way better demographics, higher dividend yields, high real yields, and then screaming cheap valuations, particularly in the value sector, uh, it's probably worth more than a 3% allocation in your portfolio. At least get back to the global average, uh, which is closer to 15, which is 5x as much as most people have. At least think about it. Take a look. That's my final thing I'll leave you with. And as we do this again in 2030, uh, we can reflect to see if that was good advice or terrible <laughs> advice. I don't know. We'll see. Agreed. Whatever the Zoom of 2030 will be. Yeah, yeah, maybe to yeah, any final thoughts? put even more emphasis on what uh, Med uh, mentioned is typically you buy stocks because you want to generate weight, uh, you want to generate some growth. So do you weigh uh, your geographic asset allocation based on size or on growth? If you're trying to achieve growth, you should go look for growth. And even though uh, the emerging markets represent maybe 20% of uh, the size of the world economy, they probably represent 75% of the world growth. So if this is what you're trying to achieve, you should allocate uh, growth stocks to growth opportunities. And this is where they are. Well, I, I would add that I think you should prioritize diversification. And I don't just mean that through asset classes, um, just stocks and bonds. I think you've got to prioritize asset classes that people aren't used to, whether they be emerging market stocks, asset classes like commodities and gold, uh, asset class strategies like trend following and uh, global macro strategies that respond well in liquidity crunches. I think liquidity is going to be something that's interesting. You know, as you get the, the massive flow to passive, uh, all of those active managers that were value players, remember value is someone who's not buying today in hopes of buying cheaper later. As they get shot and as the short players get shot, there is less and less of a buffer zone in future purchasers of all asset classes. Thus, the volatility, Mark, I agree with you, is going to be higher. And so you're going to have to think about very thoughtfully about assembling the different bets that you have in your portfolio in order to maintain not only the returns, but the stability in the portfolio. And, you know, I, I think that thinking about making sure that arithmetic return 
um, can, can the geometric return in your portfolio can approach the arithmetic return is really what's going to matter to financial plans and for institution allocators as well. So those are the three things that I would uh, urge people to think about and take away as they as they are managing through this very unique period. And I'll turn it over to Pierre. <laughs> it's been a, a really interesting conversation. So I want to thank you very much for your time and your energy and your passion and your views. We're honored to have you. And uh, this is our inaugural episode. And so thank you very much, both of you, for being part of this, this show. And we hope to have you again in the future. Thank you. Looking forward to it. So fun, guys. Thanks so much. Have yeah. a great and safe and sanitary into the year. Thank, <laughs> thank yeah. you. And likewise. Thanks,